from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. We do active shooter workshops almost on a daily basis somewhere in this country. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, a part of the Department of Homeland Security, and they are making a concerted effort to get after the problem of active shooters and soft targets. Brian Harrell is the Assistant Director for Infrastructure Security, and he joins Target USA to talk about all of the efforts they're making with their law enforcement partners across the country to stop active shooters and to shore up soft targets. On the front lines of that effort are the Protective Security Advisors. They have the ability, the subject matter expertise and the wherewithal to walk the property, walk the church, watch the, walk the synagogue, the temple, uh, that school, really understand what is that enemy avenue of approach? Where could a potential shooter come from and what to do about it? The place where domestic terrorism, the victims, and the Department of Homeland Security come together. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. On August 31st, multiple people were shot from a vehicle traveling between Odessa and Midland, Texas. Eight people, including the perpetrator, were killed and 25, including three police officers, were injured. This was the third mass killing to take place in the U.S. in August of 2019 and the fourth in a 32-day stretch. Even before this happened, the Department of Homeland Security knew it had a problem and had been working on a plan to intensify its efforts to help communities prevent these tragic events and the fear that can grip communities when people or groups that fuel that kind of activity turn up in their neighborhoods. Brian Harrell, the Assistant Director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, in an exclusive interview, talked with Target USA about what their plans are. But before we get into that discussion, a perfect example of that kind of fear and tragedy happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, two years ago. Here's an audio clip of the coverage of that day from WTOP Radio in Washington, D.C., where Target USA is located. And now continuing coverage of the deadly violence in Charlottesville this weekend. Three people are dead after a white supremacist rally organized to protest the removal of a statue of General Robert E. Lee led to street brawls and a response from police in riot gear. The worst moment, however, came when a car plowed into a crowd. WTOP's Dick Giuliano has more now from Charlottesville. 
Chanting against President Trump and the Ku Klux Klan, counter-demonstrators were marching on a downtown street, crossing an intersection, when two waiting cars were rear-ended by a third and pushed into the crowd. Matt, who saw it, believes it was an intentional crash. I just kind of along for the ride, uh, since I thought, okay, it's going to be pretty peaceful from here on out. It really just looked like an attack. The counter-demonstrators had their own first aid team. But one of them, Michaela, says police prevented her from helping treat the injured. I'm a certified EMT in the state of New Hampshire, and they like didn't let us get to the people. They gave us a lot of trouble. The driver that caused the crash fled the scene, but was later taken into custody. In Charlottesville, Dick Iuliano, WTOP News. Killed when that car hit the crowd was 32-year-old Heather Heyer of Charlottesville. Two Virginia state troopers conducting surveillance of the rally also died after their helicopter went down. And often we hear that hindsight is 2020, but hindsight is just as often proof that foresight was absent. This is Michael Masters, National Director and CEO of the Secure Community Network. I was in Charlottesville um, and meeting with the congregation there that sort of sat at the nexus of that white supremacist rally, and Alan Zimmerman, who was the president of the synagogue, said to me, you know, as events were going on, he he was standing there looking across the street and the street's very narrow. It's maybe 30, 30, 40 feet at two guys that are armed with AR-15s wearing swastikas and Confederate flags. And he said to me, we we just felt so alone. And on a on a personal level, um, you know, my immediate reaction was that's that's just wrong. Like, no, no. No member of the Jewish community, but no member of American society should be looking across the street at that and feel that they're on their own. DHS says it understands this and is working to prevent the violence and the fear associated with those events. Brian Harrell is the assistant director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency of DHS. And he told Target USA in an exclusive interview. A lot's changed in the threat environment in a short period of time. The threat environment has certainly evolved over the last number of years. So we've gone from uh, the Parkland shooting uh, a little over a year ago where 17 kids were killed to just a couple weeks ago where we had Dayton, we had El Paso, we had the Garlic Festival out in California. And so really people are now focused on that soft targets, that crowded places um, phenomenon where they're trying to do the most damage and the most pain um, and they're inflicting um, that kind of will on their our, our most vulnerable citizens throughout the country. Mm-hmm. So what's your plan? How does your plan to prepare and help first responders deal with that? So really, it comes down to four major components of how to plan. This is in addition to the physical security, maybe protective measures that you would have uh, put in place, but really comes down to connect plan, train, and report. So connect with local law enforcement, connect with those first responders. Uh, Plan. No longer is it safe to say, um, I hope it doesn't happen here. But in fact, if it can happen there, maybe it can happen here. Uh, And then train. You know, response and recovery plans are absolutely uh, critical. Um, You know, we do not magically get better 
in a time of crisis. We always default to the things that we know. Uh, and this is why exercising is so critically important. So having that plan and training uh, to that plan. And then report, you know, suspicious activity. Um, you know, things are crystal clear in the rear view mirror. And so, you know, how can we get ahead of this and start putting puzzle pieces um, together ahead of time so that we can identify that pathway to violence? We can identify those shooters before incidents actually happen. So how are you? working to do that, to get ahead of those things and, and, and to be prepared for them. So uh, the Department of Homeland Security specif- specifically says uh, here today, uh, we do active shooter workshops almost on a daily basis somewhere in this country. Uh, we also have protective security advisors or PSAs throughout the country that have that institutional knowledge. They live, eat, breathe, and sleep in that community. Uh, they are that local government resource. And so they have the ability to put on an active shooter workshop to maybe um, a school, uh, a school district, uh, that house of worship, uh, some of those other stadiums, malls, racetracks, tracks, uh, the marathon that you might run this weekend, um, having these constituencies out in the field, engaging them and doing training almost on a daily basis. And so this is part and parcel to what we think is part of risk reduction. We can measurably see this. How do they work with those communities? How, do your, how does your team engage mm-hmm. with the first responders in these localities that they're in? Uh, yeah, I know that they're there to become familiar to the community, but what's the practical tactical part of how they actually engage and connect with these well, first first responders in these locations. Mm-hmm. So a big part of it is through that PSA and having that relationship with local law enforcement, first responders, and really just having the American people, the American public understand that we have these resources available today. Uh, I think over the last 15 years, we've done a lot of really good work that nobody knows about. And so now is an opportunity to really bring some visibility to some of the things that we're uh, doing, uh, the resources that we have. Uh, You know, right now today on our website, which is uh, dhs.gov backslash hometown security, on there is resource guidelines, videos. Uh, If you're looking to do a exercise or a tabletop exercise, if you're looking for an active shooter workshop, maybe you're looking for a security clearance to have a conversation back and forth with the Department of Homeland Security, we have those resources available today. So this is pretty much um, administrative stuff that that you're making available. Is that right? We have a lot of resources that are administrative, but there are also videos and tabletop exercises, but also that PSA in the field. They have the ability, the subject matter expertise and the wherewithal to walk the property, walk the church, watch the, walk the synagogue, the temple, uh, that school. Really understand what is that enemy avenue of approach? Where could a potential shooter come from and what to do about it? And so it's these mitigation measures and the, the, the recommendation that if you're going to invest in security, where do you invest that next incremental dollar? Maybe it's an access control. Maybe it's perimeter security. Maybe it's a school resource officer. Maybe it's lighting alarms, et cetera. So really understanding having the expertise and utilizing that expertise is starting to drive risk down. Mm. Places like Gilroy, El Paso, Dayton, you have PSAs there. And uh, what was their response to this? So uh, in preparation to some of the large events uh, like that, some of the outdoor venues, uh, concert venues, um, 
uh, a, a big NFL game kind of thing. We have this relationship with the, the local venue, with that local stadium, et cetera. So we're constantly doing threat and vulnerability assessments. We're talking about the resources that we have, and that relationship goes back and forth almost on a daily basis. Uh, in terms of when an event happens, uh, immediately the PSA is notified. Typically, they're in that emergency operations center. They're trying to provide that resource and that ability to have a conversation so that when private industry needs us, when law enforcement has a need from DHS, they're able to provide those resources relatively quick. Have you done anything since these three high-profile shootings to improve or to raise the level of activity of your team? Mm -hmm. So I think we need to understand that we will never, ever eliminate all risk. Mm -hmm. Um, Today, in my opinion, this, this world is becoming more and more violent every single day. Uh, so it's not about risk elimination, but it is about risk reduction. How do we provide subject matter expertise, a conversation, understand what that um, bad actor may do, and apply some security measures to reduce risk? And so I think that is the value proposition that the Department of Homeland Security has. And so post-event, uh, a lot of it is uh, we have resources um, let's prevent this from happening again. Uh, let's prevent that copycat attack down the road. And I think the American public has been incredibly receptive to the amount of dialogue that we've had since some of these major events. My specific question is, have you and your PSAs and your team done anything uh, tradecraft-wise, mm-hmm. tactically. Yeah, I understand that, you know, you're having conversations, but I'm mm-hmm. saying have you changed anything or done anything differently or more since these shootings have happened in terms of how you do what you do? Yeah. So right after the three events that we're talking about, we immediately engaged um, the, um, you know, Walmart. We engaged uh, the Garlic Festival. We engaged uh, local law enforcement in Dayton, Ohio, to have this conversation about some of the resources that we have. So the, the, the quick answer is, is yes, absolutely. But in terms of modifying our approach, uh, now is a time in which we take these events, we take a look at the lessons learned and how can we modify our products to better mitigate risk to our stakeholders do you see anything right now i mean it's still fairly early mm-hmm. after these that you can point to that might be changed yeah it is still fairly early as a matter of fact we're still letting the law enforcement investigation kind of play out uh, we do not want to circumvent that or get in front of that but where there's lessons learned kind of after the fact we're going to want to take these put them into a document, and then push them back out in industry for everyone to consume, number one, but ultimately for the department and industry to get better. Is every community in the U.S. covered by this program? And I'm not asking if every single small town mm-hmm. is has a PSA in it, because I know the answer is no. Mm-hmm. But, you know, speaking specifically, are you confident that any place essentially where something like this could happen, the folks there know about it or at least have a good chance of knowing about it. I think the program has been around now for uh, well over a decade. And so the understanding that the Department of Homeland Security has the PSA program, uh, I think, is there. I think there's also some opportunities for improvement. I think there always is. Um, I would like to, you know, in, increase the cadre of PSAs. Right now we have 119. I could probably use 119 more um, based off that demand signal and the amount of events that are happening on, happening on a daily basis in the United States uh, really 
creates that demand signal to where we have good at, we have good, we have good resources. We want to use them, but we need to get them into the practitioners' hands. Today, DHS, I am a peddler of influence and a pusher of good product. That's what I do. Uh, I don't own the infrastructure. Uh, And so this is our opportunity to engage stakeholders, engage industry to say, look, these are the products that we have to reduce risk. Use them. And, oh, by the way, they're 100 percent free. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you for that. Um, Getting to the tradecraft that you're seeing from active shooters taking advantage of soft targets, what have you learned uh, in the last few weeks, last few months? What have you learned about these shooters? Um, not so much about the shooter specifically, specifically, but I will suggest to you that having a program with a response and recovery plan and relationships with law enforcement uh, really counts when seconds go by and lives are on the line. So having a response and recovery plan, having law enforcement relationships under blue sky conditions, knowing who your law enforcement officer, the the local FBI agent, your local protective security advisor from DHS, having that relationship so that we're not passing around business cards during crisis. Let's not build our crisis response plan in the midst of crisis. And so this is probably the the one key thing that I can really um, pull and push from recent events is having relationships with first responders before bad things happen. So more specifically, my question is not about you guys, because I know you've already talked about what you're learning and what you're doing yourselves. I'm talking about from the shooters themselves. Mm -hmm. Have you seen any trends? Have you seen anything that gives you some understanding of the evolution of uh, active shooting? And, and, And a good point, the Orlando shooter. That individual seemed to, according to sources I spoke to, pull ideas from different terrorist organizations that weren't necessarily connected. I'm not sure what the people in Gilroy and in El Paso and Dayton were thinking, aside from what we learned in the open source. Mm -hmm. But have you uh, seen anything that's taken place in the last few months, certainly the last few weeks, that gives you some understanding of, okay, this is an evolving knowledge base that active shooters are drawing upon? Yeah, I won't speak to the motivations of the shooter themselves based off the fact that it's still an ongoing law enforcement investigation. However, I I will suggest to you that um, today there is a small segment of society that is incredibly violent. Uh, They're filled with bigotry, filled with hate, and they are interested in doing the most damage possible. And uh, many times the, the avenue in which they take is to highlight and seek out soft targets in crowded places, places that don't have that that traditional security apparatus in place. You know, it's not like going to an airport. It's not like going to an NFL stadium where there's hard targets associated with that. But instead, it's the outdoor venue. It's the crowded place. It's the the, the random mall or that racetrack that doesn't necessarily have the same physical security protective measures. Uh, and so it's seeking out those targets uh, for the Department of Homeland Security uh, where we can provide them the resources to get harder and get better as we speak. Does social media uh, play a role in that kind of behavior these 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 violent folks that you you're talking about uh, it does i know but i'm just wondering uh, to what degree or to what level do you uh, see that kind of activity feeding essentially that kind of behavior mm-hmm. yeah i think social media certainly can um i think social media doesn't necessarily the highlight 
the best aspects of us as humans, right? Um, but I think you know, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of bigotry that's being espoused on uh, social media, and people are picking up with it and running with it uh, and ultimately causing damage with it. And so today, from a DHS perspective, it's not necessarily about the shooter or the act. It's about risk reduction. If we make the assumption that bad things are going to happen, how can we provide that venue, that church, that synagogue, that temple with the best practices to reduce risk? Your organization, DHS, is historically um, had a very um, close relationship and, and, and has used intelligence very practically and very well. Um, does this part of DHS's uh, efforts rely on intelligence for anything? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and so within the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, uh, we have very robust and healthy relationships with our uh, local law enforcement agencies. And so as things are happening overseas or as things are happening here in the United States where um, we have actionable intelligence, we package it, we put it into uh, bulletins, and we send it out to the private sector. And really, this is that value proposition, that public-private partnership that works. Uh, maybe it didn't work so well 15 years ago pre 9-11, but today, uh, we're very focused on sharing information. Uh, and if I have it, uh, we're not going to sit on it. We're going to share it with stakeholders who can actually do something about it. You know, within uh, private industry, we often say that 85% of all critical infrastructure is owned and operated by the private sector, not the government. And so if I have information, I need to get it out to the practitioners who can do something about it. We are risk advisors. Uh, we're not risk managers. Managing risk is up to the private sector. Do you get enough feedback, response uh, from the private sector, from companies, from agents, agencies and organizations? Um, and I guess maybe a better word would be, are they dialed into this? Mm -hmm. Are they... Are they getting this? Um, because there are those who question whether or not some critics say companies in the private sector are not getting this. Uh, what do you say? You know, I think a lot of companies over the last number of years have certainly become significantly better at sharing information. Um, you know, we have daily interaction with stakeholders, law enforcement, those out in the field that are seeing things at that tactical, at that field level that feed the national dialogue for us to kind of put some puzzle pieces together, paint a picture, and then push it back out to the industry at large. Uh, could it be better? Absolutely, 100%. Uh, I don't think any of us would suggest that everything is operating on all eight cylinders and everything is perfect. However, um, significantly better today than it really has ever been. And this is really that public-private partnership going back and forth where um, as we have information or as the private sector has information, we have to share it so that we can get ahead of threats. The See Something, Say Something campaign has proven itself many times over. Um, I'm wondering, can you... Can that be improved? Can that be taken to a new, different, more effective place? And I ask that question because a lot of information happens online. A lot of things happen online, but it's really hard to verify that. But I did hear recently that there's some thought being given to uh, asking people to report things they see online. Is that something that you're interested in? You know, it, it certainly would be. If it's going to contribute to the narrative of a pathway to violence, if it's going to provide us some insight and some um, 
you know, the ability to get ahead of threats and violence before it happens, then the short answer is absolutely report it. But, you know, the see something, say something mantra is important. It is healthy. It works. Uh, it's great. You see it up at NFL stadiums. You see it at a NASCAR track. You see it in some schools. It, it does, in fact, work. Um, but it is a call to action. And sometimes we get some criticism of, well, you know, uh, you know, see something, say something. What does it really mean? What do you really want us to do? Can you go into more detail? And really, it, it, it's a catchphrase. It's not a catch paragraph, right? And so it is a call to action. If you see something out of the normal, the hairs on the back of your neck are starting to stand up and things just don't seem right. Alert somebody, anyone, preferably somebody with the ability and the authority to take action. And again, everything is crystal clear in the rearview mirror. And if we can put these puzzle pieces together ahead of time, that is what See Something, Say Something is all about. And you would like to see a similar kind of approach online? Absolutely. I mean, where there is a rhetoric for violence, where there are threats being made, uh, engaging local law enforcement on this uh, is a proven strategy to mitigate risk. Okay. Um, what is the most challenging part of your job right now? Mm -hmm. I would say the most challenging part is um, being everywhere at once. Uh, the portfolio is very large. Um, it is a great job. It is a great opportunity to engage the American public, engage uh, stakeholders and critical infrastructure owners and operators. Um, but we are doing a very concerted effort to get our message out, talk through the pathway to violence, talk about risk reduction, and most importantly, talk about some of the great products that we have. Uh, we have a relatively healthy and robust budget. I have a lot of great products that I want to share, and it really comes down to just the visibility and the socialization of those products. What could you do better? Um, right now, I think we could um, be, more, be more visible. Uh, at the end of the day, it, it's all about that value proposition back and forth to industry. Uh, we have good products. We have you know that, that tabletop exercise, that ability to grant clearances, um, videos, white papers, uh, resource guidelines that I think today can make organizations a harder target. So let's not be reactive. Let's not wait for bad things to happen. Let's get ahead of this before it happens. Are people who could benefit from your products and services responding to you as much as you'd like them to? I think the short answer is yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, right after we have a active shooter situation play out throughout the country, as you would probably um, uh, you know, realize uh, we have, you know, an uptick in a lot of the active shooter resource traffic that you see on our websites. Uh, as a matter of fact, we've seen millions of people um, look at our website for active shooter, pull some of those resources off of it, take our free active shooter training that we have uh, online. And so I think as things happen, people are try starting to look towards DHS to grab some of these resources and materials. What haven't I asked you about that you'd like to talk a little bit about today? You know, I, I think it's really connecting with local law enforcement prior to events happening. Um, if there's one area in which I'm telling people to really invest in uh, is invest in relationships. Invest in exercising your plans. Um, this is ultimately going to save people's lives when seconds count. And so, again, under blue sky conditions, have that relationship with the local deputy sheriff, uh, that local police chief, your local FBI office, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, because not only do we have resources, but in your time of need, we can be there really, really quick to provide you that leg up when you're looking for it. 
One thing that I neglected to ask that I think makes perfect sense to talk about is when an event happens, mm -hmm. your PSA is, you said, I think earlier, will respond. Mm -hmm. What does that person do on scene mm -hmm. if an event happens? What, what's their function yeah. at, uh, on scene? Yeah. Uh, typically, uh, they're engaged and they're in contact, in constant contact with local law enforcement. Um, again, you know, when a, a terror attack happens, whether it's domestic or anything else, uh, if there's an active shooter situation, you're never going to see the Department of Homeland Security going down the street with lights and sirens towards the sound of gunfire. That's not what we do. We are very much a left-of-boom organization. Really what that means is we provide that preparatory material, getting people ready, putting people in that frame of mind that bad things can happen, they will happen, and how are you ready to respond to them? And so it's these resources, it's the materials um, that we think can make people harder targets. Okay, and one, um, one other thing I'd like to ask um, in terms of threats and risks, but more, more so about threats. Based on what you've seen and what we as a nation have gone through in the last few weeks and months, um, there's been a discussion about domestic terrorism versus international terrorism. I'm, I'm not asking you to evaluate or judge them, but I would like to ask where you see the threat right now mm -hmm. most. Mm -hmm. Well, I think within the Department of Homeland Security, as the acting secretary has mentioned, uh, we're very, very focused on understanding uh, domestic terrorism and putting resources, putting manpower and a budget towards battling this particular phenomenon. As we get further and further away from 9-11 and that anti-terrorism mission that happened right after 9-11 and standing up the department, we really need to focus on where does risk reside? Where are bad things happening? Where are those threats materializing? And right now, as uh, current events have, have kind of uh, shown us, uh, we really need to be focused on the domestic terrorism piece. And within the DHS, we are trying to gravitate and move in that direction as we speak. Mr. Harrell, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. DHS, trying to deal with a problem that sadly is impossible to eliminate. And what's worse is the perpetrators are getting much more creative, which means people, ordinary folks like you and me, are going to have to pay more attention. And when we do see something, we do have to say something. That's it for this episode. Coming up on our next program, back to Russia and the story of Paul Whelan, who was taken into custody by Russian authorities in December of last year, accused of espionage. His family says the charges are bogus. His family also says his health and his safety are now very serious concerns for them. He has seen a much more aggressive tone from the prison guards and has complained specifically about one guard that appears to be uh, getting close to being physically abusive. That's Paul's twin brother, David. Recently, Paul was injured. They're concerned now really that he is going to face surgery. It's not clear whether Paul has agreed to have surgery or not, um, but if that is the case, he will probably have surgery in the prison or at a at a military a military site, you know, nearby from a military doctor. So, what is his condition? Are the guards at the prison out to harm him? How long will he remain there? And will his case be resolved anytime soon? Coming up on our next edition. In the meantime. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. 
jgreen at wtop.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national and international security news, sign up for our newsletter, Inside the Skiff, at wtop.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. It's time to turn it up with your new favorite podcast, Expeditiously with T.I., here on Podcast One. Join the rapper, entrepreneur, family man, and activist as he bridges the gap and sheds light on important social topics and much more in an authentic, eyebrow-raising dialogue that might make you want to pull out your dictionary. Download new episodes of Expeditiously with T.I. every week on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.